Amen. Good morning, everybody. The Gospel of John today, chapter 2. Wow, this... Uh, so before first service started, the guys told me that they moved this pulpit back because of the rain. It was dripping. There is water dots all over this thing even being moved back. And first service, I got a couple of them that are making my notes blurry. So if I pause, it wasn't for effect. It was... <laughs> But it's all good. The, uh, John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and we'll finish the chapter today is the plan. And I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then jump back and, and just uncover the riches of, of the word of the Lord. And if you're new to the Bible, um, or if you've never read the gospels or heard a Bible study taught about them, there's gonna be some stuff today that might catch you off guard. Um, Jesus cleans house, so to speak. And we're gonna read that in, within the second sentence. And, and um, uh, it's because Jesus can discern our hearts. I, I usually don't title my messages, but I wrote for myself, he is the discerner of hearts. And we're, we'll see that a couple times through this text, but actually there's two different uh, periods of time that are talked about, and both of them are about Jesus discerning the hearts of men. And I love that uh, because he knows us, he knows our frame, and he is a God who is very empathetic, uh, intentionally left heaven to come down to earth to walk here, to die on the cross and to resurrect from the grave. But the way in which he did it, I'll show some scriptures as we're moving through this today, where he wanted to know how we felt from our perspective. And that was why he did it the way that he did. But John chapter two, starting in verse 13, the Bible says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple and you will rise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and, and to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when, he, when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of men. For he knew what was in men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Father, as we come into your word, may your spirit lead and guide us. We wanna know your heart, your purpose, your plan. And of all of the things that, that I've prepared, Lord, I know you also speak individually to hearts that are yielded to you. God, have your way among us. May you be glorified. And may your word penetrate our hearts and minds that we might be more like Jesus. And it's in his wonderful name that we pray, amen. Verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. When I was in Israel, and I hope that we can go as a church again sometime. Uh, we'll see how that will go. But one of the things that the tour guide taught us was that in the ancient Jewish culture, when you were traveling towards Jerusalem, you were traveling north. 
Even if on a compass it said you're headed south, if you were headed to Jerusalem, in their mind, you're still traveling north. And this word up is kind of a reference to that. Up also was because Jerusalem was a hill and it was, and it still to this day is a hill. I didn't say was a hill. I didn't mean to say was a hill. It actually still is on that hill. Uh, and it's surrounded by a mountain range that's sort of shaped like a horseshoe. So to get to it, you have to be down in the valley to travel up to the pinnacle part uh, of the mountain. But it was now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. If you're familiar with the, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all rendered Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry where John has this in the beginning. John isn't necessarily writing in chronological order. He's writing so that we might believe in Jesus Christ is his purpose. With that being said, most commentaries believe, or commentators or theologians believe that Jesus actually did this twice. And so that's why we're getting this here um, in the beginning. If it matters when we get to heaven, we can ask him. But what is important is that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know this right off the bat. Jesus changed the water into wine. Now he's in Jerusalem and he's clean in house. Uh, Passover, as is mentioned here, if you're not familiar with this, was the first of the three pilgrimage feasts for the Jewish people. The purpose of this feast was really remembrance of the Passover angel when God delivered the children of, of Israel there in, in the bondage of Egypt uh, when, the, when they had to put the blood on the lintels of the door. And then if they did, then the Passover angel would fly over um, or not harm them rather. Uh, but it wasn't just that. It was also looking forward to the promised Messiah, which was to come. So it was a looking back and a looking forward for Israel's deliverer. Also in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 16, 16, we learned some very interesting things about Passover. The Bible says three times a year, all your male shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is to say Passover, at the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. These are the three pilgrimage feasts. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Something I just want us to keep in our mind, when the, when these, the men are going to Passover, God said, don't come empty-handed. Um, also in Exodus 34, starting in verse 23, we read this again. Deuteronomy is like a recap for the second generation. Exodus is when Moses originally spoke this. Anyway, starting in verse 23, three times a year, all your male or all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. And I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. So with these two written texts about Passover, there's some pretty radical things taking place. One, all the guys need to take something, an offering to the Lord. Also, the men were going. There were some feasts that women could go to too, but the, but the word that the Lord gives them in Exodus is essentially stating, if you trust me, and if you do what I've asked you to do, you're gonna leave your home behind. Your wife and your kids, your gardens, your animals, everything that you own, you're gonna leave. And that then and there, that was a very dangerous thing to do. That all the men of the area would leave so that they would go hold a feast unto the Lord. But God gives them a promise. If you trust me in this, if you'll leave that and you'll come, the Lord said, neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before me, the Lord your God, three times in the year. I'll keep everything safe. No one will even enter your land if you will trust me. A beautiful promise of protection. Come and worship. Take those steps of faith and I will take care of everything else. And beloved, I believe that that promise still remains true to this day. That if we will take that step of faith to worship the Lord as he prescribes, that we will meet him there. 
These worshipers had to travel great distances, some of them, just to be here. These would be when the songs of ascents were sung. Psalms 120 to Psalms 134 in our Bibles. These, the purpose of these songs was to keep their hearts, their minds focused on a state of worship, to not worry about the houses and their wives and their kids and their belongings that they left behind, to not fear what may get them along the road of this journey because raiders were very popular back then, to not be discouraged even about not seeing their destination because Jerusalem, the hill of where Jerusalem is on, is lower than the mountain ranges around it. So depending on the angle in which you're coming from, you might not even see your destination. A couple years ago, we had a tour guide from Israel here uh, speaking about Israel in the current times. He also talked about the Psalms of Ascent, and that's when I learned about not being discouraged. I knew that it was to keep their heart and their mind upon the Lord, but it was so neat to hear that one of the reasons that God wanted the Psalms of Ascent is because most of the travelers could not see their destination, therefore keep singing praise to the Lord because the worship does our heart good. It reminded me a lot of heaven. You and I don't see heaven right now, but we're reminded to keep our focus and our gaze upon the things above and not on the things of this earth. Worship reminds us, it revives us, it refocuses us. It puts spiritual things in order when we do it as God prescribes with a pure heart. Verse 13 to me is just absolutely awesome. Hey, it was Passover and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And then verse 14 is like, whoop, boom. Okay, now we came back down because verse 14 and what Jesus found was those that sold the oxen, the sheep, and the doves, and the money changers. They're doing business. People went here to worship, but now they're being hindered. A little backdrop, the most common currency in the then and there was the Roman coin. The thing about going into the temple and, and giving an offering, the temple didn't want Roman money. And so they had money changers to get the temple coin or temple shekel, sometimes it's called. Some people call it the Tyrrhenian coin. And so you had to take your money and then give it to the money changers. A lot of times when we go to a foreign country, you gotta exchange your money, same kind of a deal. You give them your money, but the history records for us that the exchange rates were radically inflated. Matter of fact, Passover time of year was one of the, the most profitable seasons for the temple. They were not being fair. People needed to exchange their money to give an offering to God. As, as the word we read earlier, don't come empty handed. The people needed to also bring like an animal sacrifice and on a long journey, it would be very difficult to keep your sacrificial animal pure. If it had a cut on its hoof, they would reject it and say, no, it's, there's a blemish, you can't give this. So instead, they would bring large sums of money and, and make that exchange to buy what they considered to be pure. There were also those that lived very close and, and raised up a sacrificial offering that was without blemish, but history also tells us that those that brought their own, these people who sold and whatnot would find something wrong with it. It's missing an eyelash. It could be something very, very simple, but they would reject your animal, therefore forcing you to buy one of theirs. History also tells us that they would take that animal that they rejected to, to that man and they would put it in the back. And when that man was gone, they would bring it back out and resell it. That's why Jesus finds a pretty big mess when he walks into this place. You had to buy from them. You had to have their approval to even worship God. And you've come this far. You've been on this pilgrimage journey. You can't stop now. They kind of had a monopoly. A lot of times in churches, we use a word called fleecing the flock. And what's that, what that means is kind of like just trying to get more out of the people. It's a bad thing, obviously. But what's taking place here goes beyond just fleecing the flock. 
because these men are literally stopping people from worshiping God. They're belittling what they're bringing to God. They're hindering worship. It's when somebody's trying to worship God or honor God or obey God and somebody else gets in their way. We all face this. We all face this a lot. It's what Satan does to us all the time. You know those days when you just wanna, you just wanna pray. You just wanna sit down and spend time with God and all of a sudden your phone rings. Now I'm not saying the person who called you is a spawn of Satan, though they might be, but, <laughs> but you're just trying to worship God and now something comes in there and messes it all up. Somebody's knocking on the door. The Amazon driver won't just leave the box. He keeps ringing the, 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 the bell. I read a book that Pastor Chuck wrote, The Privilege of Prayer. And in that book, he talks about one time when he was studying for a Bible study and putting his notes together and his kids were going crazy. It's one of those fights when brothers and sisters just go at it, screaming and yelling. Apparently they were running down the stairs and yelling and Pastor Chuck comes out from behind his desk and he scolds the kids, told them they're a bunch of brats. No, I just made that up. He didn't say that. But they, he, they just kind of squashed the vibe of the, the peace of God isn't here right now. And he's yelling at them for them to, to get their heads on straight and to stop doing this. And then he, you know, go up to your room, you know, kind of a thing. And then he goes back and he sits, sits in his desk. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, do you think that you handled that properly? And then Pastor Chuck said that the Lord impressed upon his heart, this is a spiritual battle. You're trying to study my word to speak to my people. And this is a fiery dart and you're fighting this in physical means, not in the spiritual field. And so Pastor Chuck said that he, you know, oh man, Lord, you know, thanks for reminding me. He prayed because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And he said, almost at the time of amen, the kids came down the stairs full of joy and they loved each other like they had never had a fight. The problem is satanic. The solution is often prayer. There's something else here though that I think is really important that is easy for us to miss in, in July of 2021. The area in which Jesus walks into in verse 14, he walked into the temple. This is not the Holy of Holies. This is not the inner court. This is actually outside the wall in what's known as the court of the Gentiles. Paul references this in Ephesians 2, how Jesus Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation, meaning that now we all can come boldly before the throne of grace and to find help in a time of need. But in the day in which Jesus walked in Jerusalem, no, this, was, this area was as far as any non-Jew could go. We're studying the book of Acts on Wednesday nights and we even have seen how Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile man cross that middle wall of separation and they wanted to kill him for it even though it was a made-up accusation. It's how serious this area is, the court of the Gentiles. Non-Jewish people could go here though to look at what was going on and they could pray. What this means is seekers, people who couldn't go into the temple, so to speak, but could kind of get close. Now, I think during Passover, this was probably only the Jewish people, but, but it's interesting that the Bible lets us know exactly where it was because I think this speaks life to us today, that there are people sometimes that even come into our church that don't know Jesus and they're watching us. And if it was in the then and there and you were there at Passover and you're watching, how do these Jewish people, how do they worship what we would see would be people manipulating one another. No one's really helping each other. People are very selfish here in the text. People are jockeying for position, prestige, power, or profit. God really wasn't their goal. Man, I read that. And the Lord put that on my heart. I'm just like, whoa. God really wasn't the goal when Jesus walked in. It's Passover. It's one of the highest celebrations that they, one of the three pilgrimage feasts, the first of the three even, but God wasn't their goal. 
I think it's a really good reminder for, for us as a church how we really should honor God and worship him. I don't wanna show a hands. I just feel like I was supposed to make this statement. When we come to church, are we really coming for God? Is God really the reason that we're coming? Is there an ulterior motive? I also felt like the Lord told me to say this, that if you have an ulterior motive, if you came in here with an ulterior motive, you can change that right now by honestly just giving your heart to God. Just tell him the truth. God, I'm sorry, I didn't come here for you, but I'm here for you now. I think this text is also a good reminder of why we do what we do, because sometimes when we're involved in ministry, we can kind of lose sight of what's going on with others. And in that place, we actually lost what we were supposed to do. I also think this is a very good reminder to look out for the person who's next to us or around us or somebody else that might be in this room, because our example to them might really be speaking very loudly. Are we helping other people worship the Lord or could we be a hindrance? I didn't know that we were gonna sing a, a song today that said, you know, so we lift up holy hands and I'm not trying to make anybody feel awkward, but one, I wonder if there were people in here that, and I don't wanna show hands for this one either, but when we sing a song, so we lift up holy hands, did we really lift up our hands? I keep my eyes closed because I don't even want to have a judgmental thought about nobody, you know? But I mean, that we say we're gonna do it, do we do it? Or, or is it just kind of, we're just going through the motions kind of thing. I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody, don't get me wrong. But it's interesting, if you think about who we are and what we do through the mind of other people, what could other people be thinking? They said they're lifting their, you know, enough said. Are we a help, are we a hindrance? Verse 15 goes on to say, when Jesus made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. This is what I was referencing. If you've never heard this story, this may sound very difficult. Let me define it. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the changers' money. He overturned the tables and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So what Jesus is, is really doing is like, hey, you're, you're not letting people worship God. This is God's house and you're standing in the way of people that they're actually trying to obey him. You can't do this. And that's why he drove them out. It's really interesting too. So he makes this whip of cords. He drives these merchants out of the building and the sheep and oxen. That would mean there's a small stampede taking place in this area. So this is a little chaotic, obviously. Now, why this is happening, he goes and he grabs, as the text says, poured out the changers' money. That would mean that the, the money they were making, he just took their jars and just dumped it out. And then he told the people who had the doves to get out of here, kind of a thing. Um, and then verse 17 says, then the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house is eating me up. This is to say, we remembered what Psalm 69 said, that, that because of zeal for your house is eating me up, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me because zeal for the house of the Lord has consumed me and the reproaches, the, sh the sin, the shame of the people who reproach you has fallen on me. This is to say, I can't not do this. This is my father's house. They changed my father's house. I can't let this happen. And the, they're saying, and we remembered that the scripture said this. John speaks of the event and what it often means. And I love how he does that. Jesus did this because this was prophesied before. This was supposed to be a holy moment, yet Jesus walks into a marketplace of manipulation, manhandling his people to hinder worship. I love how Jesus just kind of steps into this mess and just finishes it. You know what though? I wish that Jesus still did that to this day. 
You know, like when we're watching some stuff on TV and those people are really milking people for money and lying and making up stuff. I wish the couches that they were sitting on just got turned upside down. I'd be like, well, they're not really walking with the Lord, you know, kind of a thing. Oh my goodness. Or, you know, the times when they say, you know, send in, you know, your, your love offering and we're going to send you this, this handkerchief, you know, of healing. And if you just, whatever you do with it, you know, you're going to be healed. I wish that their pile of handkerchiefs would lead like a stamp, would run away like a stampede. <laughs> you know, then, then we would all know, right? It'd be super simple, walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh. You know, to be honest, I wish that it happened with us in this church too. That if, if somebody had like an ulterior motive, if the heart wasn't right, even me, wouldn't it be interesting if God just turned us upside down? <laughs> like, well, he's not walking in the spirit right now, you know? Or if some kind of goofy conversation or a heart condition that was hindering other people from worshiping happened, that God just kind of picked them up and stampeded them out the door. You can sit outside until you get your heart right, then you can come back in. I think that would be really awesome if things like that happened. We'd know for sure who was in the spirit and who was in the flesh. But God still knows. He is a discerner of thoughts, intents. He knows our heart and that he knows the heart of the men that were here and that's why he drove them out. He made a whip, he drives them out. He, he dumps out the jars, he flips the table and there's a stampede going alongside him. And then the, the, the religious leaders that are around there, they say to him, stop doing this. No, they don't. They don't even ask him to stop. But what they do say is really fascinating. Verse 18, and the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? these guys know they're wrong. They know what they're doing is wrong. So now they're asking, show us a sign that you're actually sent by God. Because they already know they're sinning. They're manipulating the people. This, this isn't right. This, this, it's pretty obvious. If they, if they thought they were right, they would try to end this, but they don't. They know something is going on because of their fault. What sign will you give us to prove that this is right. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, we read, for the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. A lot could be said about this verse. My point is just this, that the Jews were looking for a sign. Prove to us that we're wrong and you're right. But Jesus was a stumbling block to them and still is to a lot today as the scripture says that there's a veil over their eyes. But one day, beloved, that veil will be lifted. When God's word wasn't enough, preconceived ideas, expectations outside of scriptures became almost like required to even believe what the person was saying. So when Jesus is in front of them, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. And then the Jews say in verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you say you'll rise it up in three days. So Jesus is standing right in front of them and they completely miss what's going on because the text goes on to say in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus has said. But this statement that Jesus makes will be one of the chief accusations in his court hearing to be killed. He said he would destroy the temple. We heard him say it. I love also here how John speaks of that event and then what it meant. I just love how John does that as we're moving through the text. The first one that we saw that zeal for your house has eaten me up was something present, but now we're learning about a word from the Lord that comes in the future. I think that speaks life to us too, because sometimes God gives us a word for the immediate. Sometimes God gives us a word for, and it's about something that's gonna happen in the future. If you're waiting on that word that the Lord gave you and it still hasn't taken place, don't give up. 
Because for these disciples, they didn't even really figure it out till they were on the other end. After he rose from the dead, then they remembered that he said all of that. And it will be the same for you, that on the other end, you will remember it too. Don't give up. Now, quickly, historically, they're talking about, you know, the, the temple of Jerusalem, and it took 46 years to get in its current state. We could talk a whole lot about this temple, but I think it's important to know this. It was Herod the Great that decided to do a, a fixer-upper project on the temple. He was updating it, so to speak. The temple that Zerubbabel and, and uh, Ezra were a part of was not the same glory as Solomon's. <clears throat> because of Israel's sin, they were taken into captivity. First, the Assyrian Empire came in and took all of Israel, but they didn't get Judah. And the Lord allowed this to happen because the, the Jewish people were not honoring God. They were not following God. And he sent prophet and judges to them over and over again, and they were not listening to the Lord. So the Assyrian Empire came in and overtook Israel. God gave Judah a, like a second chance to, to not go under this bondage, but to repent and live for him. But they did not either. So the Babylonian empire was brought in, overthrew Assyria and got all of Israel at that point and held them in captivity for 70 years. After that time, the Persian Empire comes in and a king named Cyrus essentially allowed, or his empire allowed the Jewish people to go back and start to rebuild Solomon's temple. This is when Nehemiah went back and started building the wall. This is when Ezra, and there was a couple different kind of movements that went back to do this. And, and we're talking about basically Zerubbabel's work. And now Herod the Great has spent some 46 years in updating it. It was considered in Jesus's day, the most beautiful building on the planet even non-Christian or non-Jewish people rather would come here just to see it. Some of the articles that I've read about it said that they, on like the fascia across the top, they had these golden shields that were angled at certain uh, directions so that when the sun would hit it, the sun would reflect so that the, like the glory of the temple or the radiance of the sun would be so bright that most of, in the daylight hours, you couldn't even look at the temple because it just kind of like glue with the radiance of the sun. And they did that on purpose. It's pretty spectacular. 46 years is what, that's their reference about this. But the main point, Jesus was actually the sign that he was giving him was his own body. Now in verses 23 through 24, we almost, 23, 24, and 25, it's almost like we have, oh, by the way, more than just this event took place, more than just Jesus going over there and, you know, turning the tables, but something else happened too that's important to know. And in verse 23, we read, and when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name because they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of men for he knew what was in men. It's almost like, hey, don't think that just turning the tables was the only thing that happened here. But a lot of people gave their life to Jesus because they saw the things that Jesus was doing. Or as the text reads, they saw the signs which he did. I think this is really awesome. But then the text goes on to say, this could sound a little complicated, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of men for he knew what was in men. But this, he did not commit to them, really means that Jesus didn't go the, the way of the tradition or the common way. The word commit means to be persuaded by, to follow, to become one with or to trust in. It's what we're supposed to do to Jesus. Jesus is not supposed to do that to us. It reminds me of Joshua when he was gonna go into the battle of Jericho. A lot of things were going on there. 
but he goes away to pray just to kind of be alone. And an angel appears before him. That angel, the word that's used there is Jesus. It's a Christophany. It's Jesus revealing himself in the Old Testament as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now Joshua looks at him and says, are you for us or are you for them? If this was written in California language, it'd be, Odele Vato, who are you for? Because that was a popular question in the area in which I grew up. Are you for F Trooper Santiago? And you better know, because it was controlled by gangs. That's kind of what Joshua is saying. Are you for us or are you for them? I love what the commander of the army of the Lord says. No, but I come as commander of the army of the Lord. Are you for us or are you for them? No. Joshua, it's not me being on your side. It's you being on my side. I am the commander. You come where I am. That's why, and that's the exact same thing that's being stated here. Jesus didn't commit himself to the people. He came that the people might commit them to himself. Matter of fact, in John 3, 19, we'll probably study this next week where the, the scriptures say, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's what's being said here. Jesus came to all people that he might walk amongst people to redeem them back to God, to buy them back to God that humanity might have fellowship with God again. He was not persuaded. He was not moved. Now, what this also means is that we're reading about something that could have been a temptation for Jesus. Go with the flow. People are acting a little crazy up in here, but don't change it. Don't flip the tables over. Don't clean God's house. Don't hold the line that you're supposed to hold. I've heard it stated that Jesus did not live in reaction to the devil, but he lived in response to his heavenly father. He didn't commit himself to the people. He didn't buckle under pressure. He was not persuaded by peer pressure. He was not persuaded by what was taking place. He wasn't tempted to sit. He was tempted, but he did not sin. And what that means for you and I is that right now, one of the things that we're learning in this text is Jesus didn't commit himself to men means that he was tempted in all points as we are tempted, yet he was without sin. As the book of Hebrews says in chapter four, starting in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I am so thankful for this because Jesus not only came on the earth to buy us back, but he intentionally came as a human being so that he might know how we feel from the inside. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That means he's, he has gone through our weaknesses and in every point was tempted, yet he didn't sin. You know, one of the temptations that Jesus had was when, when the devil tempted him three times, he took him up on a high pinnacle point. And God willing, we can go to Israel. The tour guides will tell us that was the, the, the pinnacle point. I don't know if it was. It seems a little far-fetched that that thing's still standing when they tore all the, the walls down, but that's not, who cares what my opinion is. But it's very interesting to note to go there and to say that's where Satan took Jesus. You see that? Jesus and Satan were right there. And that's where, where Satan told him to jump off. And, and we know that Jesus says, you know, you, you, know, you shall not tempt the, tempt the Lord thy God. And that's what we read. But what it really means is that what the devil said to Satan was, hey, prove yourself to the people. Jump off. And before you hit the ground, slam on gravity's brakes. Er, 
Lord, and just say shalom. All the people will trip out when they see you do that, and they're really gonna believe that you're someone special. Draw attention to yourself. Live in response of the people instead of God. Jesus was in all points tempted, but yet he didn't sin. And this section of scripture, he didn't commit himself to the people because he knew it was in people, is, is really awesome because we have a connection with him in this place, in a place of weakness, in a place of temptation, because he was there too. So the Bible tells us the very next verse in 16, it says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Because Jesus has been there, he can give us the comfort. He can help us get through it. He knows the struggle because he's been there. Isn't it really comforting when you're going through a really hard time, so hard that you don't know if you're gonna get through it? And then a trusted friend who's been through what you're going through just says, you're gonna make it. Don't give up. Because you know they've been there and done that. Well, Jesus is that. We have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is our help in a time of need. He knows our struggle because he, as the verse prior to this said, was in all points tempted, yet without sin. I also find it very interesting that Jesus doesn't calling out the sins of the people. He just drives them away. It's very interesting to me. Even there in the court of the Gentiles, he just cleans up the area, but he doesn't call them out one by one. In Psalms 113.6, the Bible says, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. This word humbles means to lower, to behold means to become near, to perceive. It means to understand in an empathetic way. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus, far above the heavens, came through the heavens to come to planet earth so that he would empathetically understand our thought processes, our pains. It's a cry out to say, he is the God who can save. He is the God who delivers. He is the discerner of our thoughts because he knows the intents when things are done wrong, but he knows the intents of our heart even when things are just off or something was done against us. He is a friend always that sticks closer than a brother. He knows our heart. There's nothing hidden from him and he wants us to, to just come to him to find help. In the whole context of all this, kind of taking this point and taking the last point of being there in the court of the Gentiles where all kind of common people would be there, but they were hindering people from worshiping. They were hindering people from coming to God. They were manipulating, stealing from the people. We gotta be really careful that we don't do that too because God knows our heart and he knows the hearts of other people. I've heard it said before, don't clean the fish before you catch it. Speaking of evangelism. In the churchy culture that we live in right now, they want everybody cleaned up before they come into the house, but that's the exact opposite way of things are supposed to happen. The Holy Spirit is the one who cleans us from the inside. Something else that we saw today that it was like, you know, the way that we act could be a reflection towards other people. And I think it's really important that we always remember that too, that we have no idea what could be going through the heart or the mind of people that are even in this room right now. And the way that we act, the way that we worship is a reflection to them, should they then worship too? But sometimes we can get lost in so many things that we're not here for God anymore. We're, we're trying to, you know, figure everything out. Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, you strain a gnat and you swallow a camel. It, it, meaning you're doing all these things that, 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 that really don't even matter, but you're doing it because you think that you're right in the way that you're doing it. He even says in another place, you tithe mint and cumin, but you forgot the heavier things, the bigger things to love your neighbor, to be kind. 
It, it, t- we don't always have to be right all the time. We don't always have to have all the answers all the time. Sometimes it's just being loving and kind and not making judgment calls because we don't know what people might be going through. This might be an uncomfortable statement for some people, and I don't mean it that way, but it's just something that God did with me when I was giving my life to the Lord. I was still doing things that were really bad and I had given up the things that I thought were really bad and I was just keeping the organic things that I thought were okay because after all, God created them. And and like that. (laughs) And God didn't give up on me. He took me where I was. He didn't throw me away. I'm not saying that God was pacifying me doing that. But God knew my heart. Sometimes in the church, we can see things in people and we just want to push them away because you shouldn't be doing that. I'm not pacifying sin in any way, shape, or form. But I remember my dad telling me often about people who were living in fornication. They weren't married and they were sleeping together. And sometimes it would be kind of obvious But he would even tell me that we got to make sure that people aren't judging them, that people are coming at them and people are attacking them because they're pressing into God. And I know if they they press into God, the Holy Spirit will change their life. And he would share testimonies, and, and I've done it now too. How many people who were living in sin, who the Holy Spirit convicted, and they and they come into the office and they say, We have to get married because we're not right before God. Praise hallelujah. I did, a, I did a wedding for a couple that was in that kind of a state who gave their life to the Lord. And while we were there, the best man who was a pagan came up to me in tears, gave his life to the Lord because if God could change their life and save them, then that guy knew that he needed to get cleaned up too. We have no, and they were coming to this church for a long time. God, but... If churchy people go at them and tell them that they're wrong, that could run them out the door. That could also mean you could stop them from giving their life to Jesus. It could, it, it could put us in the position where God would try to make a stampede out of us. Beloved, I am not pacifying sin, but you and I live in a world where we grade sins based on how we think about them. We could cheat on our taxes and say that that's okay. We could be very prideful or arrogant or gossips or busybodies. We could talk behind people's back and say it was a prayer request. We could sow seeds of discord among the brethren by pointing out the wrongs in other churches and say that that's okay. But that sin is as equal to fornication. We gotta be really careful that we don't position ourselves as a Sadducee or a Pharisee and, and attack people who are trying to find God. God is the discerner of hearts. I love how Jesus didn't call out their sin. So much so that many people, even in the midst of all of this sin, verse 23 said, but so many people gave their life to Jesus. Even in the midst of all this chaos, so many people gave their life to Jesus. The purpose that we're on this planet is to worship God. We were created to worship him. The problem about people who don't worship God is they don't know that. And there's a lot of Christians that don't know that too. We have to be patient with them as well. Allow them to to be built up in the most holy faith. Jesus knew what was in men and he didn't commit himself to them. But Jesus knew what their end was gonna be. He held the line of truth with grace. Remember we read that in chapter one, he was full of truth and grace. Grace without truth is not true. But truth without grace is not true either. Because the way that it's delivered it negates the heart of God. We gotta be so careful about that in our life that we don't make judgment calls that we're not supposed to make. 
The Proverbs tell us of what is desired in a man is kindness. Again, to stop all the emails that would be coming in, I'm not pacifying sin. I'm saying that it's the, the only way that somebody's gonna get saved is by a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's when the Holy Spirit comes upon people and he changes their heart and he changed their mind. Again, it happened with me and I've known it to happen with hundreds of people, a long suffering, patient God. But if there is a critical or a judgmental spirit that actually could be quenching the Holy Spirit. Remember, we were created to worship God. After that, we're created to go make disciples. After that, or even before that rather, to be led by the Holy Spirit. Our life is to actually be led by the Holy Spirit. And so we too then, like Jesus, won't live in reaction to the devil, but where we can live in response to our heavenly father. How cool would that be? You know, Jesus will say so many times through this book, I don't even say what, what I think. I only say what the father told me to say. He even says in other places, I have so many other things to tell you, but I'm not. This is what you need to know right now. And I love that about Jesus. We're gonna close with the song and the prayer counselors are gonna come up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you discern every heart. Thank you that your word is even a discerner of our thoughts and our intents and that even prophecy uh, reveals the secrets of our heart. God, we wanna be men and women after your heart. In all that we would do, thank you that Jesus did this. Lord, we do think it'd be cool if we would see more of this today, but your kingdom come and your will be done as you see fit. God, I pray for anybody that might be hurting, that they would know that you empathetically feel. I pray for those that may be wandering, God, that they might come home. I pray for those that feel alone, that they would know your presence. And Father, I pray that you would make your face to shine upon your people, that your goodness, your grace and truth would abound, that, that we would become lower and you would become higher in all of our life. I pray that your blessing would be with your people and the things that they're gonna do this week, Lord, that your grace would go before them and that you would create new and better ways. I pray the things that they put their hand to, Lord, just like J Joseph, that you would be with them and you would make it prosper. Their questions, their struggles, Lord, I pray that you would bring answers and that their fears that you would quiet and that you would replace it, God, with great faith. Lord, I also pray that we as your people, God would see the lost come home and that you would use us for such a time as this. We bless you, oh God, for your mercy, your grace, and your truth. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we